there I was. I could see what was happening to Germany. I could see what happened in a Holocaust. I could see what was going on in a trial. I just happened to be there. Bill Shoup knew how to type. That is, of course, not a unique skill, but it played a key role in determining what Bill would do and where he would serve in World War II. The young man from small town South Dakota found himself as an Army teletype operator, sending coded messages during the Battle of the Bulge. Then later, after war's end, he would do the same in Nuremberg, Germany, for the International Military Tribunal that determined the fate of Hitler's most ardent disciples. Reverend Bill Shoup is 97 now, a retired longtime minister. We visited recently with the man who had a seat at history's table. You grew up in Spencer, South Dakota, tiny town, 600 people or so, yeah. and you worked in your folks' grocery store. Yeah. So you didn't have, at that point in your young life, much of a worldview. You knew there was a war going on and so forth. Tell me a little bit about those early years in Spencer. As a teenager, I was involved in a church, a Christian church, where I was hearing very conservative theological stuff. And as a teenager, I was reacting against it in that that didn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It wasn't uh, thoughtful enough and so on. Well, who was I as a high school kid to know what any great theologian had thought about anything? I hadn't read that, but I knew that wasn't making any sense to me one day and uh, visiting in a drugstore on our little main street and the pharmacist in there, he said, Bill, have you ever watched or have you ever listened to Harry Emerson Fosdick? I said, no. I said only that our minister refers to him as Harry Emerson Fiddlesticks, that he's, he's a bad guy because he's a modernist and he's a liberal and all this kind of stuff. So this pharmacist says, I think you ought to look. So I, here I am as a teenager listening to Harry Emerson Fosdick from Riverside Church every Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. So my reaction, well, if religion can make sense, maybe I'll stick to it and maybe there's some place for me in it. So my thoughts about the possibility of ministry had a beginning in those teenaged years in what I was hearing from Fosdick's preaching. So when the time came and we're graduating from high school and all the guys in the class, maybe 10 of us, were going to be drafted, minister friends were saying, hey, declare yourself for the ministry, you won't have to go. And I said, well, I'm not going to declare myself when all my friends are going off to do it. Because I thought, well, that, <laughs> that's not fair. And, and I had no training for the ministry. So I just dismissed that as even a possibility and accepted the draft. 
Tell me about the mood among the ten of you in your graduating class going off to war. Did all of you know that you would be called? All of you feared oh, I going? Think, I think we all felt this was inevitable. You know, if you were healthy, you, you're going to be drafted. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you made the decision, okay, I'm going. I'm going to yeah. serve my country. Yeah. So it was goodbye, Fort Spencer. Basically. Hello to Fort Benning, Georgia. Fort Benning, Georgia. And you started out in the 86th Infantry. So you were going to be an infantryman. You were probably going to be sent to combat. Yeah. But someone comes along and discovers that Bill Shoup can type. Right. What happened? I said that I could, and uh, they transferred me then to the 97th Signal Battalion. What did you think when this officer came to you and said you can type and we're going to send you now to the 97th and you're going to have a different mission? Did you understand what was going on then? Not really, because I had never been near a teletype machine. <laughs> I mean, kid growing up in South Dakota, I, I didn't even know what a teletype machine was. Only that evidently they need somebody that can type. See? All right. So you demonstrated a proficiency for typing, and you became a teletype operator. I became a teletype operator. Uh, was it easy to adapt to that? Oh yeah, I had no problem with that. No. Explain what a teletype would do. In today's modern age, we have so many different means of communication, texting and emailing yeah. and so forth. Were these all coded messages that you were sending? Most all of them. So it's secured communication. Or uh, what was happening out there was coming in coded, and then we would be sending that maybe to an uh, army, 12th Army Group Headquarters, or uh, God only knows where the messages were going uh, for people to be informed. Where are you and what's going on and all this kind of business. So the 97th Signal Battalion is directed to head overseas. Yeah. And you're on a ship. You're in the Atlantic Ocean. You've never seen a body of water that big. Yeah. Lake Michigan was new to you. Yeah, <laughs> right? Michigan was Wow. So you, you end up going in circles in the Atlantic, and you're, I'm sure you're kind of wondering what in the heck's going on. What yeah. was going on? Well, only that uh, they thought the German submarines had been spotted. And I don't remember whether we had some smaller ships out there ahead to kind of lead the bunch of us that were going to Europe. I assume that's probably what was happening. Was there any measure of fear among the men on the ship? No, I don't think so. Nobody was run out. One of the interesting things was, I think, with guys my age, and in the middle of the worst of things, there was always a sense of humor about it. Those damn Germans are going to get it, or, you know, we'll, we'll be talking with, uh, which was maybe partly a cover-up for fear, although I don't recall just living with a lot of fear about what was happening or what's going to happen to me. But, but one of the reactions which several of us had was, we are young, single, we didn't make it. We are not fathers, husbands, with them, we have mothers and fathers, yes, that, you know, okay, you lost a son. But we didn't think it was quite as bad to lose us because we didn't have these connections. 
only we'll say with parents and, and friends. I think we took it lightly, you know, oh, okay, so we didn't make it. Then you're shipped over, you go to Belgium. Well, we actually went up, is it the Rouen River in France? And that's where we got off about halfway up in there and said, you're, you're heading for Belgium. Okay, so off we went to Belgium. Did you know what your mission would be in Belgium? No, only sit there and do a teletype machine. Right, communicate. Yeah, communication. Um, and your, your communications uh, work begins then with Battle of the Bulge. And yeah, really. The, the Bulge starts in December of 44. Yeah. Um, you had an experience. You didn't see a lot of combat, but you had one experience. Yeah. Uh, walk us through that. The weather was the problem, for us at least, because there we were out in the winter in the Ardennes forest trying to, well, they wouldn't let you build a fire because the planes had seen right. But it may have been both to our advantage and disadvantage. If the weather was bad, the enemy couldn't fly, but neither could our support. So the problem was that we weren't getting air support because of the weather. So there we are freezing in this, out there in this desert or in this forest, we'd maybe find a house or a barn, and that was where the experience that I had shared about. We were watching the buzz bombs, buzz bombs. coming over, and it was uh, not totally dark, but it was getting pretty dark. And you could see that uh, they, they were little rockets, and you could see the exhaust, but uh, you could tell about the size of the thing and the little wings. and They weren't targeted very well. They hadn't developed a good system. They said, when it runs out of gas, it's going to crash. So here we are, a bunch of us, and we were staying in this barn because we'd take over a barn if we could get one and get out of the cold and so on. So uh, when the motor stopped, uh oh, well, one hit maybe a few blocks away from us, you know, Hitler thought he would demoralize us because we were just living with this uncertainty of these buzz bombs coming in. That's when we, we had been outside in the barnyard there watching this and this German plane came in and strafed across the barn and the crazy American guy was coming back in and turned his lights on or something and so the plane saw and strafed this. We went back in the barn where I was sleeping the shells had gone right through where I had been sleeping. If we hadn't been out there watching for those buzz bombs, well, I wouldn't have made it. Had you been in your bag, you wouldn't be here today. Oh, yeah, that, I'd have been gone. Thank goodness we were outside watching the buzz bombs. So this is battlefield theater. You're actually outside watching bombs coming in, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and we, we were always where we, maybe we could hear the artillery, and we were always aware of air support, and, you know, we were conscious of stuff going on all right, and, and moving through some of these small towns. I can recall going into a, a home, and there was still food on the table. People had evidently left in the middle of their meal and had taken off. Well, we weren't interested in just getting a hold of uh, somebody's home to steal it. We were just looking for places to stay and get out of the cold. And so we'd take over and then we'd leave and so on. So whether they came back and 
so on. We did have the experience um, when we were leaving, we stopped at one of the places where they were taking care of some German prisoners of war, and this one fellow was out there carrying one of these uh, heavy tanks that carried water or gasoline or whatever, and he was carrying this, and he was marching around, and then had a sign that he, I guess in German, that he had tried to escape or something, and they were punishing him. So this one guy, I didn't know the Geneva Convention, but this one fellow in our group, he says, that's in violation of the Geneva rules. You cannot take a prisoner of war and make him an object of uh, ridicule. <laughs> ridicule and, and so on. You treat him as a legitimate prisoner and so on. Well, he obviously wasn't. But <laughs> So then we got arrival at the, the departure, and somebody from the legal end of things came and said, before you leave Europe, we want to know if any of you have been involved in any violations of the Geneva Convention or all this kind of stuff. So several of us said, well, yeah, we, we saw this happen, you know. He said, we're not interested in what we did, we're interested in what they did. Oh, oh. Now we oh, understand the oh, rules of war. Okay. Because when we were observing this fellow, some of us, we said to the captain, Captain, that's not right. I mean, they shouldn't be treating this man this way. He said, please get back on the train. Get, just get back on the train. It's none of your business. Germany had surrendered? Well, we'd have been, uh, I guess, on the border. It, it wasn't far from where we went across the Rhine into Cologne. Mm -hmm. So it was in that area. Reaction? Your reaction? Your fellow soldiers' reaction? You knew this day was coming. You were hoping well, this day yeah, would come. Yeah. Was there jubilation? Did you open a Pilsner? No, there was no big celebration over it, I don't think. It's just, well, okay. Okay. We're going to win now and probably occupy Germany for a while. Did, did you know you would be part of occupation, or did you think that maybe you would be coming home? Uh, I had no idea, really, I guess. When they said to you, to the 97th, uh, certain members of the 97th, you're going to Nuremberg, and you're going for the International Military Tribunal, what, 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 did you know what that was going to be about? Did you have any inkling? I had, had no idea. I was not, not aware, I guess, really, of what was going on or all the background of developing that because something was happening pretty fast when you can put together a major court kind of situation. But they were very careful to point out that this is not a court, it's a military tribunal. When you get to Nuremberg, uh, this is at the Palace of Justice, which still was relatively intact when the rest of Nuremberg yeah. is in ruins. And the big parade grounds where Hitler had a lot of the Nazi rallies, those impressive yeah. rallies because of the size and scope of them, you actually 
was able were able to get on the, those grounds. You stayed there. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. What were your impressions when you walked in and you looked at that? Well, just I guess delight in being able to see and experience where this crazy man had developed into the kind of person that he was and leading Germany down that horrible path. When we got to, uh, into Nuremberg and fellow soldier and I were walking down the street and this little girl came along and said, uh, would you like my f mother to do your laundry? Oh, well, oh, yeah, fine. And uh, we'd be glad to talk to your mother. So she took us over to the home and we visited with mother. She said, yeah, I'd be glad to take care of your washing for you or whatever. So we got acquainted with the family to visit and have meals and so on. And when I would question them, you know, how does a man like Hitler get to where he was? The, the father said on one occasion, and I remember this experience so well, he said, you have no idea how controlling he was if we said something as a family and one of the kids said something at school that reflected something we said at home that wasn't favorable, the SS would be on our doorstep the next day. It was that fast and you lived with that kind of fear. So you didn't say anything. You just shut up. This is what's going on. We can't do anything about it. And of course we were trying to reassure them as Germans, well, for heaven's sake, we want to get you back to normal life and have a normal Germany again and so on. We were the big, brave people going to help you out. How but did I they don't react think to most that? of us just realized how controlling Hitler had become. It was just right down to the grassroots. When you're assigned to be the teletype, one of the teletype operators at the actual trials, are you, uh, are you in a room where you can see the trial, or are you in an isolated room where you're hearing oh, no, communication? We, we had an isolated room. Uh, the trial was kind of the second floor area. We were downstairs on the main floor. We had, of course, a number of rooms. We were just in one of the rooms there. This balcony is there at the side of the, the courtroom. And you could, we could come and go there all the time because, well, we were in the courthouse, so we, we'd been cleared and we just had access to sit in the balcony and watch what was going on. The trial which is now about to begin is unique in the history of the jurisprudence of the world. And it is of supreme importance to millions of people all over the globe. This was a session that was groundbreaking because there was no template for international war crimes. Yeah. Uh, that had to start at the beginning and it came from different, different treaties and Robert Jackson, who is the lead prosecutor, and others start forming the basis for these trials. Yeah. which ha had never been done before. Yeah. They didn't even have a, uh, they, they didn't know what they were going to charge him with. They were not entirely certain. Right. You didn't know anything about that then no, no. because they didn't have it formulated. Hereby accused as guilty of crimes against peace, 
war crimes and crimes against humanity? And are they common plan or conspiracy to commit those crimes and accordingly name as defendants in this cause Hermann, Wilhelm, Goering, Rudolf Hess, Joachim von Ribbentrop, Robert Lye, Ernst Carlton Brunner? When did you finally get a sense of what these crimes would amount to? Crimes against peace, aggressive war, conspiracy? Well, uh, you didn't sit there and observe what was going on before it took very long for you to see what was being said that would convict these people because a lot of it came out in uh, Jackson's opening remarks. They'd already done all this investigation, and he was there to say, this is why we're here, to do this kind of thing, and put these people on trial. And, and that's what was so fascinating for me, at least, as a kid that didn't know a heck of a lot that was going on in the world, to sit there uh, and watch these men who'd been at the top of the whole German enterprise. Here's Goring, head of the Luftwaffe, sitting there and almost wanting to ignore what was going on. Like he, I, I'm just bored with this whole thing. You know, just, well, he'd look around, could I think of something else to do, you know, but no, I can't, and it was a strange thing. And then Ribbentrop, who'd been a Secretary of State, Oh man, he's active, he's wanting to gather information, talk to people, and get ready, I guess, for his self-defense. Hess. Hess uh, is seated right and, next and to Hess Goering. sat there kind of just with a blank stare, and I thought, well, I wonder if the man really is mentally uh, deficient. He, he, he's in a fog, he doesn't know, or he, or he just doesn't want to pay any attention to it. He had flown over to the Scotland and he thought he could go make peace with the, with the British. He, he was close to Hitler and was carrying out, I guess, a lot of Hitler's stuff. Your official capacity was to send back via teletype communication. It was all coded, so you had no idea of the messages you were sending. But on your days off, you would go and watch the trial, sit yeah. in the balcony. Yeah. And so you saw these guys, and you listened to the testimony, and I know you said to me that you were really impressed with Robert Jackson, the Associate Justice, yeah. who was the lead prosecutor for yeah. the United States. And you heard his opening remarks, and I want to read just part of it. The privilege of opening the first trial in history for crimes against the peace of the world imposes a grave responsibility. The wrongs which we seek the to condemn... The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant and so devastating, that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Really powerful stuff. Yeah, oh, great stuff. Were you uh, on the edge of your seat during all this? Well, yeah, I, I was impressed with his eloquence, his... Uh, description of things uh, and so on, you know, this is, this is super stuff, you know, as a, as a kid, I guess. I was, what, a 20-year-old? 
and with no legal background. And you probably weren't aware then that there was a real difference of opinion on how all this was going to be handled. Okay. Churchill wanted to line them up and put them before a firing squad, yeah, get it just, over with. Just go shoot them. Stalin <laughs> wanted a show trial, do a trial, and then shoot them. The U.S. wanted to try them fact-based, put it all, lay it out, and create some something of a template for what a war crime is. Yeah. So I guess, arguably, we took the noble path. Yeah. Well, that, that whole thing, uh, as I recall, there was a gathering in London. Seems to me I used to have that part of that document as a preliminary, all the uh, conflict there as to how you do something when you're dealing with three, three or four nations that do not have the same judicial systems and ways of doing things. Well, we're going to do it the American way, or we'll do it the French way, or the English way, and so on. And uh, I think it was, oh yeah, here it is. The uh, agreement by the government of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland, the government of the United States of America, the provisional government of the French Republic, and the government of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics for the prosecution and punishment of the major war criminals of the European Axis, London, August 8, 1945. And that's where the bunch got together to try and resolve the conflicts and came up with, this is the way we're going to do it at Nuremberg. But that document there is when that agreement was reached, and I just happened to have a copy of that. The Nazis directed such a campaign of arrogance and brutality and annihilation as the world has not witnessed since the pre-Christian era. They overran their neighbors to sustain the master race in their war-making. They enslaved millions of human beings. Well, we know a lot more about it now than we did than you did as a 20-year-old kid oh, listening yeah. to it. Yeah. And you understand today, many years later, the significance of what was going on then. And part of what was entered into evidence were films of concentration camps. Oh, yeah. Give me your understanding, what you knew then and what you sensed the prosecutors knew then about the Holocaust. I was aware of uh, concentration camps and way in which the Germans were doing this. I, I think I was conscious of that as a teenager, you know, that, that we knew that. You, know. you went during a break in the trial to Dachau to see the concentration camp well, there? Well, it was sometime on the way, I think, there. We were just going to stop, take a look, and, and uh, a friend had a camera, and I think I have a picture somewhere, he took a picture of the room where they would send in to get the shower, and then he took a picture of the bones outside. Yeah. Well, when you saw that, what, what, did, what did it do to your head, that man can do this to his fellow man? Well, total shock, I guess. Uh, I knew, or we knew, I guess, that this kind of thing had gone on. But then it's, it really did. Persecution of the Jews was a continuous and deliberate policy to divide and embitter the democratic peoples and to soften their resistance to Nazi aggression. 
The conspiracy or common plan to exterminate the Jew was so methodically and thoroughly pursued that despite German defeat and Nazi prostration, this Nazi aim largely has succeeded. Of the 9,600,000 Jews who lived in Nazi-dominated Europe, 60% are authoritatively estimated to have perished. History does not record a crime ever perpetrated against so many victims or carried out with such calculated cruelty. I think reality sets in in a way that's uh, deeper, more lasting in terms of impression. When you're then at trial and you're listening to some of the testimony about this, do you remember moments, did, did, did you see any reaction among uh, von Ribbentrop, uh, Goering, Hess, Keitel, any of the other well, Germans? I don't remember in the trials uh, any discussion about the Holocaust so much as what these generals were doing in terms of the war. Almost to the man, they would say, when we'd gather to make our plans, here's the next operation we're going to do, this is the way we'll do it, and so on, they could take it into the Fuhrer, and he would throw it all out, and we just had to do it with the way Hitler wanted to do it. That all of their plans and ways of doing it didn't mean a thing, which was kind of new for us to sit there and hear these people who were part of his machinery have to say, well, we'd make our plans of here's the things we need to be doing, but it didn't mean anything because Hitler made the decision. Well, when the accused are sitting at trial, they begin to point the fingers at each other. We were just following orders. We did what Der Fuhrer told us to right. do. Right. And wasn't the whole notion of the tribunal that there is individual responsibility here, that you just can't get away with saying, you know, I was just taking orders. When, when do you, on the basis of moral principle, back out from orders? And that's just, just a tough one, because Americans had to answer that one too. What if an American general told you to do something, would you Obey or disobey, chances are, if you want to save your neck, you're going to do it, see? Very much like the family you visited. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> not be stupid. You better play his way. They had built this little scaffolding out there in the you know, the prison courtyard in there. And of course, I <laughs> uh, read later that uh, the, the uh, soldiers, uh, Jodel and I think, I'm, I'm not sure who all, they didn't want to be hung. They wanted to be shot with a firing squad. No soldier's gonna be hung. That, that was an insult that, you know, don't crucify me, shoot me, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the outcome of that, which happened after I was there, those that were hung were then taken to Dachau into the ovens and 
cremated, and they took the ashes then to Munich and dumped them in the river there. The river went through Munich because they did not want anybody to ever make some idol out of those Hitler people. Their ashes had been shipped off in the river at Munich. You know, and that's a fantastic way to... There's no burial place for them. There's no cemetery where you can go and put flowers or do anything about it is to get rid of the thing. I thought it was a fantastic thing. You were really a witness to history. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you had a sense then that you were so? Did you say to yourself as a 20-year-old, wow, no. I'm seeing some history here? No. Or did that take place later on in life? Oh, I think that's something that grew later. And I, I never, and I don't say this as self-affirming, but I don't think I ever tried to portray myself as some hero involved in big historic events. I didn't do anything historic. I was just doing what I was told, happened to be here. So I'm just telling you that I have not, only in recent years, used the expression I'm a historic person. I'm a historic person in that I was an observer of what was happening. There I was. I could see what was happening to Germany. I could see what happened in a Holocaust. I could see what was going on in a trial. I just happened to be there. But I didn't do any great thing over that. But you were a witness to history? Uh, but I saw, you see, I was a witness to it. What do you want your grandkids and great-grandkids and subsequent generations to know about what you witnessed during World War II? I think you ought to have an understanding of political affairs that uh, make you treat what's happening in society with a legitimate demand always for at least truthfulness. Let's start by saying we ought to be dealing first with truth. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that all you think and do about the social order should be done with a sense of compassion rather than criticism and rejection. What avenues of service are open to you if you want to perpetuate, number one, your own healthy personal morality? And what do you want to see as the healthy society that makes room for variety, differences, not only in ethnic stuff and race, but in ideas. And how do you deal with those situations in which there is honest, healthy disagreement? Can you handle that?
From his wishes, you get a sense of how Reverend Bill Shoup has led his life. Teamed with Mary Jean, his wife of 73 years, he has impacted thousands of lives. We thank him for sharing his wisdom and recollections. Some notes on the War Crimes Tribunal. Of the 22 top Nazis tried in Nuremberg, three were acquitted. 19 were convicted on some or all of the counts. 12 were sentenced to death by hanging. Goering was one of the 12, but the day before his execution, he somehow acquired a cyanide pill and committed suicide. The bodies of those who were hanged were in fact cremated in a Munich crematorium, though not at Dachau, as was widely believed at the time. The ashes were placed in the river Isar, as Bill recounts, so there could be no shrine to evil. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. And if you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.